This is the Badir Brothers, a Vespucci story written by Yuhai Metal and narrated by me, Ali Suleiman. All eyes are on the three young men on the defendant's bench, Muzhir, Munzir, and Shadibdir. It's September 2001, and this courthouse in Tel Aviv, Israel, is packed with stern-looking people in expensive suits. There are lawyers from major banks and Department of Transportation, and representatives from the Shimbait, the Mossad, and the Ministry of Defense. These are the country's most powerful people, and they're the victims of the most sophisticated cybercrime in Israel history. The Badir brothers know they're at the center of attention. They realize the charges are serious, that they're facing decades behind bars for hacking, theft, fraud, conspiracy, and extortion. But it's hard not to notice the glimmer of a smile on their faces, as if they're thinking, hey, not bad for three blind kids from Kufur Qasim. It's 20 years earlier, in 1981, and the Badir family lives in a small room with a toilet and shower in the corner. They eat and sleep and bathe all in the same room. The three brothers and their teenage mother, Halima. The room is full of telephones and answer machines in various stages of disrepair. The brothers' favorite pastime is tinkering with these devices, pulling them apart and putting them back together in strange new configurations. Halima is happy to see her sons developing a skill. Since they were little, she's taught them that the world is harsh, unforgiving place. She knows that the odds are against them and that they'll have to stick together to survive. She first noticed something was different about Muzhar, her eldest son, when he was just a baby. Whenever she went outside with him, he'd stare directly at the sun. And when she gave him a bottle, he didn't look at it. He just opened his mouth. She took him to a doctor who informed her that her baby was blind. Halima was already pregnant again. And realizing that Muzher's blindness was genetic, she was filled with anxiety. She tried to push her worries aside, but when she gave birth to another boy, she named him Munder, which loosely translates to foreboding. At first, everything seemed fine, but when she took out a toy and dangled it in front of him, Munder didn't look. In the small Israeli village of Kafur Qasim, a mother who gave birth to blind children was seen as having done something wrong. 
their blindness was God's punishment. Ugly rumors started circulating. People would point and whisper, Ya Haram, Ya Haram, what a pity. Halima stopped caring what other people thought. The only thing that mattered was making her sons independent. No one in her family had ever gone to college, but that was her dream for her sons. For that to happen, she knew they'd have to make it on their own. One day, she turned to her blind five-year-old son was her and told him to go buy a chicken alone. He was terrified. He'd done this with her many times and believed he had a mental map of the route in his head. But still, the path to the store was so long and he never imagined going it alone. Muzhar begged for her to come with him, but she refused. Finally, he let go of his mother's hand and trusting the map in his head. He began the daunting journey through his world of darkness. When he came back bearing the chicken, Halima swallowed with pride. She then stilled the fire of independence in her boys, but even she didn't understand just how brightly it was burning. Halima refused to enroll her sons in a special school for the blind, and she told the teachers to treat her sons like any other boys. Let them work it out for themselves. But in Kfur Qasim, blind people were outcasts. The prescribed course in life for boys like Muzir and Mundir was to be married off to a girl no one else would marry, and big for alms at the entrance of the mosque, sometimes invited out of pity to recite the Quran at places of mourning. On their first day of school, the other children ran away from Muzhar and Mundar, and parents complained about their kids being in the same classroom, believing that blindness is contagious. All day at school, the brothers were terrorized. Classmates hit them and then ran away. Objects were placed in their path. And when the brothers asked for directions, they were sent straight into a wall. If you'd arrived at Al-Shamila Elementary during recess, you might see something like this. A herd of children run after a soccer ball while behind them, in a quiet corner of the yard, two skinny boys stand huddled together, gravely discussing their future. They're talking quietly, almost in whispers. But even if another kid come near, he wouldn't get it. Muzer and Munder are communicating in a secret language they've invented. Low murmurs and suggestive sounds that only they can understand. Right now, they're devising a plan. They'll use their wit to charm the other kids and gain acceptance.
Muzhir has an uncanny ability to imitate the teacher's voices, which makes him something of a sensation. Even the teachers like it, and they insist doing everything themselves, just like their mother told them. When a car is arranged to pick them up from school, they refuse to get in, opting to memorize the route home instead. But despite their effort to be accepted, whenever a bully is on a prowl, the Badir brothers are easy, obvious target. And it isn't just at school that they feel ostracized. One afternoon, as the brothers sit together in the mosque at the packed Friday prayer, they feel a tap on their shoulder. A grown-up asks them to follow him, trusting in the older man. They're led out the back entrance. The door closes behind them. It's winter, and the blind brothers stand there in the drizzling cold. They get the message. No matter how hard they try, they'll always be different. They give up trying to win people over. They're alone in the world, together. By now, Halima is pregnant again, and it's no surprise that their new brother Shadi is also born blind. The two older brothers bring Shadi into the fold. He learns to dismantle and reassemble electronics as he's learning to crawl, and Muzhir and Munther teach him the secret language. If Halima's intention was to open them to the so-called regular seeing society the opposite is happening the trio is becoming a world unto themselves the brother's only source of connection to the outside world is a small am fm transistor radio in the tight protected space of the apartment they sit for hours listening to israeli public radio and bbc world news they learn about sports and politics and the economy. They stay up to date with the latest celebrity gossip. It's how they develop their imaginations through sound, not through sight. Something they hear about on the radio is a device called a telephone. For them, it's almost like science fiction. The only phone in their village is in the town hall. And in Israel in the 80s, the estimated wait for a phone line to be installed is three to five years. But on the radio, sometimes people call in. The brothers are intrigued by this exotic technology. And when they hear that a public phone is being installed at the end of their street, they're unimaginably excited. On the day of its installation, the brothers ceremoniously track over to handle this new wonder for themselves. Like three disciples on a holy pilgrimage, they walk in a tight line, one leading the other, their hands on each other's shoulders. When they reach the phone, they take turns holding the earpiece listening to the lights on, trying random numbers. They call the speaking clock hundreds of times 
just to hear the voice. They call 411-311-911 just to chat with the operator. They pass the receiver from one brother to the next until it's dark and Halima comes to drag them home. That night, the brothers can't sleep. The phone is a piece of wizardry just by lifting the receiver. The whole world is spread out before them. A world of unimaginable possibility. If only they dial the right numbers, say the right words, they can connect with anyone. The next day, they pack their lunches, shoulder their bags, and leave for school as usual. But they never make it past the end of the block. They camp out at the payphone. People going to work see them sitting there. And in the evening, on their way home, they can't believe it. The boys are still in exactly the same spot. The brothers spend so many hours on the phone, talking, listening, exploring, that they start to notice something strange, something most phone users are completely oblivious to. Behind their ringtone, barely audible, they notice weird beeps and clicks. It's almost as if the phone has a secret language of its own and is trying to speak. Without knowing it, the three brothers have embarked on their journey to become the first Freakers in Israel. That's Freakers with a PH, like phone, the name given to a subculture of people who discovered that they can take advantage of phone systems in ways the telecom companies never imagined. In the 1980s, all the technical information needed to connect one receiver to another streams on the same line used to make the calls. An entire lexicon of beeps and ticks exists just beneath the hearing threshold of the average person. For the Badir brothers, it's like trying to solve a riddle. What do these beeps signify? When do the clicks go silent? And why? Then Shadi the youngest has thought if they can hear the signals coming from the switchboard, maybe the switchboard can hear signals coming from them. Together, the brothers come up with a theory. When you put a quarter in the phone, it makes a series of beeping sounds signaling that payment has been made then it gets a signal in return, an approval, a green light to connect the call. Muzer takes the phone and using his talent for imitation, he tries mimicking the beeps. After hundreds of failed attempts, he finally achieves a modest breakthrough. The brothers manage to make a free local call using the public phone. It only takes a few more weeks for them to completely reverse engineer the phone's analog coding language. An enormous bank of wavelengths and beeps are now catalogued in their heads 
ready for use. By now, Muzher and Munther in the fifth grade, and Shadi he just started school. At first, it was just an oddity that these blind kids were hanging out by the payphone all day. But now, some neighbors show up, and the brothers, happy for the chance to strut their new skill, help them place free call to relatives in Jordan. Kufur Qasim is a small place, and the rumors spread rapidly. Suddenly, everyone is interested in what the brothers are up to. Line forms by the payphone. People are waiting to make their calls. As soon as they get their two minutes of phone time, they walk away without a backward glance at the weird kids who made it happen. And then, hallelujah, praise the Lord. In Eid al-Adha, in 1991, the Badir family gets their very own home phone. From that moment on, the line is busy 24-7, day and night, and the conversations at night have a slightly different feel. The brothers get acquainted with a form of entertainment still in its infancy, the party lines. These mainly consist of a female operator having erotic conversation with lonely men. But the brothers don't want her for that. Through the party lines, they can connect with the stranger without telling her they're blind. They become master of conversation, learning exactly what to say and when, identifying the tiniest sliver of doubt and assuaging them. They inspire empathy, change personality, imitate voices and accents. In this closed little room in Kufur Qasim, the blind brothers become the smoothest smooth talkers in the Middle East. Many of these calls are one-off affairs, but sometimes a deeper connection is formed. One night, Shadi, the youngest, hits it off with an operator. True, he's lying about his name, age, and nationality. In the darkness of the phone line, she can't see that he's a poor, blind Arab kid from Kafur Qasim. But still, he's never had such deep, intimate conversation before, let alone with a woman. They share long, vulnerable phone calls deep into the night. Only many years later, when she's invited to testify at Chad's trial, Will she see who she was talking to that whole time? It's 1998, and David Goldenberg is working as a security specialist for Basic, Israel's largest telecom company. His job is to locate and counteract phone fraud. David's good at it, but lately he's barely managing to keep up. Something or someone is chewing up and spitting out switchboards throughout the country. A massive fraud is underway. Calling abroad from Israel 
is extremely expensive. But the most expensive calls are what's known as PRS, Premium Rate Service. These are numbers for things like relationship therapy, legal advice, or phone sex. PRS numbers are a hotbed for fraud, and David knows all the steps of a typical scam. Step one, a scammer in Israel makes a deal with a PRS service in a foreign country like Sierra Leone. The service gives them a unique phone number and says the profit from each call to this number will get split between us. Sometimes there is an actual service behind the number, like someone reading horoscope, but usually the service is fake and there is nothing on the line at all. Step two, back in Israel, the scammer targets a switchboard, preferably it belongs to someone large corporation that owns thousands of phone lines, like an insurance company or bank. The scammer calls the switchboard, break in, and reprograms it to dial that number in Sierra Leone over and over again. The switchboard and the number conduct long, completely silent conversation. Hundreds and thousands of times, the bills rack up. Step 3. The scammer collects their cut from the PRS, leaving the target corporation to foot the bill. That's how it usually works. But this new scammer is on a whole other level. David finds that Israel's largest pharmaceutical company, a nuclear test facility, and many telecom corporation have all been hacked. The list is almost endless. It can't be the work of just one scammer. David listens in on a recording of one of the hacks. He hears quick beeps, then silence. In that silence, there must be a response from the switchboard. But he can't hear it. David assumes the hacker is actually a group of people, most likely telecommunication experts, with almost supernatural hearing. He takes his finding to the police and tries to explain all about dual-tone multi-frequencies in and out of band signaling system and how tuned coils and integrated circuits generate two separate hertz. The police look at him like he just fell from the moon. The case is too complicated, too technical. There is nothing they can do. David goes home dejected and the hacks continue. The losses pile up. Officer Chaim Kadmi is responsible for the safety of the telephone communications within the IDF, the Israeli army. After work one day in 1998, he arrives home 
to a ringing phone. It's the control center, and this sound stressed. A telecom company's security officer is on the line, and he has urgent message for Cadme. Something fishy is going on, the officer says. When he dials a certain civilian number, instead of ringing, he gets a call signal from a different line. And he's been noticing unusual call traffic to Arab countries as well. The calls, he says, are all coming from the same area code. 03512 in Tel Aviv, Yaffa area. He's not sure exactly how or why, but his gut tells him there is a connection. He dials the suspicious number. And like the security guy said, instead of a call signal, he gets a dial tone. So he keeps calling. This time he punches the number of his control center. One of his soldiers picks up. Cadmi asks him what number it says he's calling from. The soldier reads it back to him from the caller ID. Cadmi is perplexed. It's a military number. Cadmi turns on his PC and uses his modem to log in directly into the switchboard. Then he calls again. This time, he can see it for himself. Every time he calls a civilian number, a line in the military switchboard turns busy. The next morning, Cadmi gets out of bed. It's been a sleepless night. He washes his face and goes to work. Determined to find out what's going on, he gathers his team and they lock themselves in the room until they can solve the mystery. At first, they are totally in the dark. The only certainty is that everything is connected to the switchboard of Galeitza, the army radio station. Someone has programmed a call forwarding to one of the lines of the directory. Suddenly, something jogs Cadmi's memory. Just a few weeks ago, his unit was contacted by the army radio station with a very specific request. For a holiday special, they needed to enable soldiers in the field to dial the switchboard and be connected live on the air to their relatives overseas. Cadmi had helped make that possible. Apparently, someone has figured out how to take advantage of that ability. Through a phone line, they've hacked into the army switchboard, allowing them to place calls wherever they want. Neutralizing the specific number that they've taken over is easy, and Cadmi quickly does so. Everyone in the room join in a good laugh. Then the laughter subsides. The room grows silent. Someone quietly asks, if up until now, this number automatically redirected to the army switchboard. Now that it's canceled, where does it lead? Will someone pick up? They dial the civilian number and someone answers in Arabic. Hello, me Becky. Hello, me Becky. Who is this? Who's talking? Demands the voice. Cadmi's mind is racing. Who is he dealing with? Terrorists? 
Foreign Intelligence Service? He hangs up and rings the warning bell. And finally, people start to take notice. The military, the Shabak, Israel's equivalent of the FBI, and the Ministry of Defense are all called into an urgent meeting at the police headquarters. They sit around the table in an undescript conference room. The severity of the situation apparent in the fact that there isn't even time to put Borekas on the table. Everyone is somber until the door opens and in walks David Goldenberg, the telecom security specialist. He's smiling. This is the breakthrough he's been waiting for. It's one thing to hack into some private switchboard. Big deal. But Arabs hacking into the army? In Israel? Finally, something is going to be done. David settles down, puts on a grave face, and begins his attack. He explains that when you hack into an army switchboard, theoretically, you could listen in to senior military staff. But despite this shocking news, the police are still hesitant to begin an investigation. They've never successfully prosecuted a computer crimes case, not once. They turn to Officer Cadmi and tell him to start again from the beginning. He relates the story of pursuing the suspicious number, ending with how his team canceled the call forwarding. One of the detectives suddenly perks up. Wait, you did what? Let's take a step back, he orders. Restore everything to the way it was. We don't want them to be suspicious. The detective's name is Osmo, and he's walked into this mess with virtually no knowledge. He has to learn on the go. In the coming days, as the police embark in their first computer crimes case, he methodically visits all the telecom companies to gather testimony, and he starts noticing patterns. Someone has been placing thousands of calls to the telecom company's internal help desks. Usually, they identify themselves as a tired but friendly technician tasked with fixing some problem. The technician asks for a specific code or to be patched in somewhere. He seems to know a lot about switchboard locations. He can even describe interiors of the telecom offices. He charms and flirts with the female operators. Every time he presents himself with a different but similar sounding name. Amir, Meir, Rami, Ariel. Jewish names. The accents and his ethnicity change, but the voice is consistent. Meanwhile, Osmo tracks the location of the number this mysterious technician is calling from. Strangely, the address leads him to an orchard located south of Tel Aviv. In the middle of this orchard is a hut, and no fewer than five phone lines are connected to it. Osmo has stumbled upon a pirate switchboard. The police are excited. They have enough for a warrant, but Osmo decides to wait. 
He knows a premature raid will only net him a small fish. He wants the real brains of the operation. He decides to tap the lines. Investigators work in round-the-clock shifts, monitoring the hundreds of calls being funneled through this ramshackle switchboard every day. Mainly, very expensive international calls. The investigation is getting expensive as well, and Osmo starts to lose his backing. His superiors hate prolonged investigations. His colleagues are whispering, doesn't he have any real criminal to chase? The telecom companies are also upset. Every 10 days, the switchboard incurs over 100,000 shekels worth of calls. Osmo knows he must act soon. Then one day, there is a short circuit, and one of the lines in the switchboard stops working. Listening in on the wiretap, Osmo hears someone say a critical set of word. The blind one will fix it. A rumor is going around security circles. People are talking about three blind prodigies from Kufr Qasim who have been working as a telephone security consultants since they were teenagers. When Osmo hears the rumor, everything connects. The conversation in Arabic, the sharp hearing, the flirting with the call center dispatchers. He marks the Badir brothers as his main suspects and start to set his trap. He asks the telecom company to cut one of the lines in the orchard. Not long after, a phone call is made from the Badir family's home to the telecom service hotline. The man on the call identifies himself as a technician and asks for help to reconnecting the line. Osmo already recognized the voice from his hours of wiretapping. He instructs the company to comply and do as the man asks. A few minutes later, a call comes out from the Badir home. It's the same person, this time calling the orchard. He's giving an update. The line should be fixed soon. That night, the police raid the orchard, confiscating new box with detailed call records and arresting several men manning the bank of telephones. But these aren't the Badir brothers. They're low-level operatives, teenage boys from Egypt and Jordan working there illegally. After the raid, Osmo finally starts to understand the scope of what's going on. If you're living in Gaza, East Jerusalem, or the West Bank, and too poor to have a phone at home, you walk into makeshift call center, a simple room with a series of phones. You pay for a set amount of minutes, and the dispatcher on duty places a cheap local call to the orchard. In the orchard, the men set the timer according to the amount of minutes you've purchased and connect the requested number through the army radio switchboard. When the timer goes off, your call is disconnected. Behind the scenes are the Badir brothers. 
from a room littered with electronic jank that they bought with fake credit cards. They're busy day and night, while Muzer is on the line convincing operators to divulge crucial information. Shadi is listening intently, deciphering the codes. Everything is being funneled to the middle brother, Munzer, considered by some to be the mastermind of the operation. He's busy utilizing the new info to break in and program directories all over Israel. It's an endless cat and mouse game with telecom security and the brothers love it, especially considering they keep winning. Even now, as they get word of the raid at the orchard, they're strangely unbothered. And then, at four in the morning, they hear a loud bang as the door crashes open. They feel steel handcuffs being clasped on their hands and legs, and hear the scuffling of dozens of men flooding the house and turning it upside down. They are arrested for stealing credit cards, piracy, fishing, and dozens of other crimes. As they're led outside and placed in the back of a van, the officer bagged every phone, every card, every scrap of paper. Sitting in the van, they realized that the police have cordoned off the entire neighborhood. Suddenly, the news comes over the car radio. Three men arrested this morning in a raid on their home in Kufar Qasim. They are the news. And while they sit there afraid, knowing that they're going to jail, the brothers also have a feeling of victory. The media is going wild, while the other high-profile Jewish-Israeli hackers have received minor sentences. The story around the Badirs is different. To many people, their blindness suggests supernatural powers that the media loves to exaggerate. And they aren't Jewish. In every article and broadcast, there is an implied warning that their activity posed a national security threat. In Israel, Arab plus knowledge equals potential terrorists. This paranoia permeate the criminal proceedings the prosecution asks to keep the judicial records of the official computer network so they can't be hacked. The court stenographer is asked to go back to the old analog stenotype machine. The brothers themselves are prohibited from even touching the present payphone. A guard has to dial and hold the receiver for them and Warden doesn't want them to have anything electrical either. Dismantle the vent, confiscate their electronic kettle and their fan. The brothers ask what on earth they can do with an air vent. The way they're describing you, says the Warden, you could make an airplane out of that vent. According to the rumors, Shadi can turn a stapler into a radio receiver. And Munzer and Muzer are capable of using a payphone to control the traffic lights all across Tel Aviv. Such a myth has been built around the brothers. 
they decide to just go along with it. Then the indictment is submitted and the trial begins. 48 different charges are thrown at the brothers. The case is unprecedented in its scope. Computer fraud, wiretapping, hacking into switchboards. Some of the accusation have never been tried in Israel before. It's a heavy burden on the presiding judge, Saviona Rutlevi, a seasoned juvenile court justice with no knowledge of phones, computers, or cybercrime. All she has to rely on is common sense. Throughout the proceedings, the Badir brothers are surrounded by experts, lawyers, and witnesses light years away from their isolated existence in Kufur Qasim. In a strange way, they enjoy the trial. They approach this new legal world with the same ravenous curiosity that until now they devoted to the phone. Their lawyer loves them. And so does Judge Rutlevi, despite herself. She knows they're being charged with serious crimes and that the court isn't dealing with some childish prank. Still, she can't help but sympathize with the brothers. Three poor disabled Arab kids who show up at all hearings with their mother. They seem smart, alert, attentive, respectful. As someone who's devoted her life to putting juvenile misfits back on the right path, she feels that the state has failed them, all that potential squandered on scams. Her affection for the brothers comes through even when she scolds them during the proceedings, especially when she scolds them. There is something almost intimate about it, like a loving mother adopting a severe tone with her children. The prosecution and the defense present polarized narratives one paints the brothers as arch-criminals, dangerous to society, possibly tied to terrorism. The other frames them as naughty, ill-fated children, intelligent but bored kids who took a prank one step too far. As the evidence mounts with dozens of witnesses taking the stand, the brothers refuse any attempts at a plea bargain their intent on seeing the trial through. And while they deny the allegations, at the same time, they find it hard to resist taking a credit for their achievements. Finally, it's the day of the verdict. Everyone is there to hear what Judge Ruth Levy has to say. And no matter how she might feel about the brothers, the evidence is overwhelming. From their seats all bunched together on the defendant's bench, they hear her pronounce the word guilty. But the all-important matter is sentencing. No one has ever been charged with crimes like these in Israel. So what's an appropriate prison term? The prosecution asks for a double-digit sentence. After all, the brothers fought the trial at every step and haven't expressed remorse. But criminals have names, a life story, 
a mother. Judge Ruth Levy is charged with weighing the complexity of the human condition. On the day of the sentencing, Muzher, Munder, and Chadi are seated on the defendant's bench. The judge enters. The room falls silent. She opens her binder and begins to read. Munder, who was considered the technical mastermind, gets five years, two of which he already served during the protracted trial proceedings. Muzher gets six months of community service, and Chadi, who was still a minor, is let off with a slap on the wrist. Two years later, and Halima, Muzher, and Chadi are waiting outside the prison gate to greet Munder. He got a third of his sentence knocked off for good behavior. But still, it's been a long time away. When he walks out of that gate and embraces his two brothers, they whisper in their private language, and then Munder notices the noise. It's not just the family waiting there for him. People from his village have come to witness his release. The world is still dark around the brothers, but as they turn to the waiting crowd, their ears fill with the sounds of celebration, acceptance, possibility, connection. This was a Vespucci story in collaboration with Paul Dhu.